The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Thinking on the way here about like just all the things that have to fall into place for women to leave the house and to be able to come. And like, I mean, like I was thinking about like the food that I planned this weekend that we could have as leftovers tonight so that it was quick cleanup so that, you know, then I could pump and then we could get out the door and it just, there's just so much that goes into it. And so thanks for coming ladies. Um, those of us who are going through and teaching the Psalms, we have a little texting group, and in that texting group, I feel like we've gotten a little possessive. Like, we no longer refer to the Psalms as, like, Psalm 32. That's Andrea's Psalm. <laughs> so, like, tonight, Psalm 33, this is Ginger's Psalm. Like, this is my Psalm, um, and it's my baby. So, I just wanted to invite you all um, to read my Psalm with me. <laughs> Um, and I just, I thank you for coming and being ready to, to listen and to learn together. Um, as the owner of Psalm 33, I want to tell you that the main, the main thing I want you to get from this Psalm is that we worship a God who is worthy of praise and trust. So those are, that's really, that's the biggest thing. If you leave with nothing else, know that he is a God worthy of praise and trust. Um, I'd just like to pray for you real quick. I know Mallory prayed, but I'm going to pray again because it's never a bad idea. So, God, I thank you for these ladies, and I thank you for your word. And I thank you for um, hearts that are postured to learn. God, bless our time together and um, encourage us in just something that, that is said not by my doing but by yours. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, the psalm, this psalm is actually like really confusing to summarize, so I made a, well, Chance, Chance made a outline, so that's just going to stay up there, so like as we go along, you can kind of figure out where we are, and that will hopefully help you organize the psalm in your brain. So we can't actually get into my psalm, my psalm, um, without looking back though to Andrea's psalm. Um, the cool thing about this one is that in Psalm 33 is what they call an orphan psalm. They don't know who wrote it because it's not listed at the top. It's like only a few are like that in the beginning of Psalms, and 33 is one of them. So I thought, oh, that's really annoying. Um, but with, whoa, hold on. Um, with some study and some reading and some research, it's pretty quickly evident that David wrote this psalm because it's very much a continuation of Psalm 32. Um, If you remember, Andrea's psalm explained to us about our sin and the weight that sin is upon us and how that weight pushes us to confession and then to repentance and then overall it's a psalm of thanksgiving. We're thankful for the forgiveness that God gives to us. And then in the last two verses of that psalm, David reminds his people that the people who trust in the Lord will experience God's steadfast love. Um, And then he reminds them that they also should be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. So what's going on here is Psalm 33 is really that response to Psalm 32. This is the shout for joy. This is the response of gladness and rejoicing. It's like David preached this really convicting sermon. It was really, really good. And then at the end, he's like, this should lead us to worship. Hold up, let me grab my guitar because I wrote a song and we should all sing it together and then we'll end in prayer. So (laughs) that's how I feel like Psalm 33 is laid out, okay? 
Um, and of course, David didn't write like simple lyrics like that good, good father song that repeats over and over. It's not like the whole like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus. It, it's actually a little more complex than that. It's got a lot more poetry elements to it. The, the way it actually is laid out is that there is a call to praise. So he's inviting all of us to come and to, to sing this praise song with him. Then there are 16 lines, not verses, but lines of text that all point to why should we praise God. And it, it gives three reasons for why we should praise God. Then between 11 and 12 is sort of where the division is, between verses 11 and 12. So you could like draw a line in your copy of scripture even and say, okay, above this line is why praise God, and then below this line is why should we trust God. Okay, so there's like a little separation there. Then after the next 16 lines, again, it's that 16 line thing, um, the next 16 lines are about why we should trust, and then following that there is just a declaration of trust, like we do trust you, God, and then a plea or a prayer at the end. So does that make sense? <laughs> it's, it's complex, but we're, we're going to chug our way through it. Um, this psalm, though, it, it's been really good. I was with Caitlin. It took me multiple readings to be like, okay, what am I getting out of this? Is there anything in here that like really is striking me? But after digging with it and spending a lot of time with it, it's such a good psalm to learn who God is. And it was written for the people, the original audience, but all of that is still true today. So it's been really cool to see that. Okay, so we're going to reread the psalm slowly together and um, figure out why God is worthy of praise and trust. So verses 1 through 3, shout for joy. There it is again. It's being quoted from Andrea's psalm. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. All of that's from verse 11 in, in Psalm 32. And just like we learned from Andrea's psalm too, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, it refers to Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the God of his promise, the God who has a covenant relationship to save his people. Okay, so David has now like established this connection, that first verse between the two psalms, and he's moving on to some new content in verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Just from those two verses, we learn a little bit more about how this psalm is to be sung. And it is not like this quiet, unplugged acoustic session with like some guy and his guitar on a stool. Like that's not what we should picture. Um, I actually picture worship sessions in Africa. We spend time in West Africa, my family, and there's a lot of shouting. Everybody's jumping up and down. Some random people in the audience bring their instruments and they just start banging on them. And like that is just loud and jubilant and just there's so much noise. That's what this reminds me of, this loud shouts. Um, but the musicians that are playing, as you see in verse 3, they're not just like strumming any old notes or pounding on the drums in any which way. Like they're playing skillfully, um, which that makes sense. I mean, God gives us our abilities, and so therefore he wants us to give them back to him for his glory. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I have not mastered this harp of 10 strings. Like, I, we got our kids these guitars for Christmas, and they are three-string guitars. So they're three of the regular six strings so that they can, like, learn or whatever. And so when they got them, I thought, oh, I need to, like, try to learn a little bit so maybe I can help teach them. And there's, like, a little app and all this stuff to go with it. So 
I'm here to say it took me an entire weekend, but I can now play Shake It Off by Taylor Swift on a three-string guitar. <laughs> but that is all I can play. <laughs> so I don't think David would have been asking me to get up and play this 10-string harp. Um, but you know what I am good at? I'm good at working with kids. I'm good at leadership. I'm good at hospitality. I'm good at encouraging. I'm good at listening. Um, God gave me those skills. And those are the skills that I need to give back to him. Thank God he's not asking me to play the harp. But I do have skills that are, that are worth bringing back to him to give him glory. And maybe you're really good at the harp. It's awesome. Or maybe you sing like in the angel choir. That's also great. Um, but maybe there are other things that you're good at too, like planning and cooking or motivating and speaking or listening. Those are all things that we need to continually practice. Those skills are important that we can bring them back to God for his glory. All right, let's look at verse 3 again. Um, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. I got a little confused when I was studying this part because new song just sort of struck me wrong. Like, can you imagine if we told the guys at Delta that they every Sunday had to play a new song? That like the entire worship set couldn't be pre-planned, it always had to be new and something different and changing. Like that's not actually what God's asking us to do here though. That would be a little chaotic and we know that God is not a God of chaos. So I decided I needed to little, dig a little bit deeper for that. Um, this, the Psalms were like an old faithful hymn book. I mean, even people in Jesus's day come back and they quote the Psalms. So we know that they were saying repeatedly. But what I learned was it's not the song that's new. It's God's mercy on us that's new. So in that response, we respond in a new way, like it is new every time. Um, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, I hear this scripture quoted a lot. But it was really cool because that phrase steadfast love comes up again. Verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So daily, and even more often for some of us, God's mercy is new upon us. And so our praise needs to be renewed every single time that he sheds his grace upon us. All right, so in verses 1 through 3, we see we've been called to praise. We've been called to join David, get in, get in on this action and sing and praise. We're supposed to gather. But now, like I said, the next 16 lines are why. Why should we praise? So let's enter into those. Let's see, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I love that Amanda walked you guys through this. If you want to know who God is, all you have to do is look at those verses. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that he is upright, he is faithful, and what he does is faithful, and he loves righteousness and justice. Then we get to that last line of this section. Um, Remember, we talked about in Lamentations, and we talked about it's all throughout Psalm that steadfast love phrase keeps showing up. So I think it's important. It was also in Andrea's psalm too, I believe. We need to, you know, dig into that and really know what that means. So the, in, in scripture, in, in the psalms, they're written in Hebrew, and there are a handful of words for our one word love. So it is kind of interesting when you think about it. Like, I love my kids. I really love tacos. I also love my husband, but like those are very different kinds of loves, but in English we only say love. 
So my love of tacos is very different from my love for my husband, obviously. <laughs> um, but this is, the, this is the form of love that is called hesed. That's the Hebrew word for it. The steadfast love. It's not the like ooey-gooey teenager hand-holding, heart-throbbing, you know, that kind of love. It's a covenant love. It's a love of promise. And it's a love that never fails. I got reading and I read on some commentaries and everything. All these really smart guys have all these really great things to say about the word hesed. And I, as I was reading it and reading the definitions and stuff, I realized that this picture book that I read to my eight-month-old, like on a daily basis, that it actually had a better definition in it than anything else. It's by Sally Lloyd-Jones, the gal who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I was like, who needs those guys? Like, I'm going back to what I know. <laughs> so anyway, I grabbed his children's book and brought it with me, and it was the definition for steadfast love that she gives is it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I just love that. It's covenant love. So as you see in verses 4 and 5, we learn that God is upright, just righteous and faithful, but then there's this breakdown that occurs, because you know what's not upright, righteous, just, and faithful? Us, his creation, his people. But it's because of that breakdown that he is required to use, as has said, that he is required to love us with a steadfast love, despite our shortcomings. He still loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. So back to the purpose of these 16 lines. The first one is why we should praise God, and that's because of his character. Because he is upright, he's righteous, he's just, and he's faithful, and because he loves us with that steadfast love. Okay, so since we've established who he is, now we get to see a little bit more of what he does. So looking at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God creates. That's what we learned from that. He doesn't just mold and form, which would still be like awesome and incredible, but he speaks. God says a word, and light comes from darkness. Green vines rise from the ground. Mountains peak and volcanoes erupt. Animals are born, dust swirls, and humans are formed. God breathes life, and the chests of his created rise and fall. God creates. But let's keep reading. There's more. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in his storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. All right, so in these four verses, David is using a structure that reminds me of a sandwich. All right, I don't think his original audience really thought he was describing some, like, future, you know, culinary phenomenon, but that's what I think of. <laughs> so it, what it is, though, is that there is a main point that's the bread, that's the beginning and the end, and then there's another main point that's like the roast beef on the middle, you know. So in this, the six through nine, the sandwich, the, the, first, the first part and the end part, that's verse six and verse nine, both focus on God's word. So that's the sandwich portion of this. Then the other important point in verses 7 and 8 
is God's power. That's the roast beef, okay? So God's power is immense. Um, When hearing these words, David's original audience would have thought of the story of crossing the Red Sea. Those were their ancestors. And their ancestors walked across dry ground because God stopped the mighty waters from flowing. And not only did he stop them from flowing, he completely dried them to act like they had never even been there. The same words are used in that passage in Exodus about when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea as are used here with the the sea and the heap and then the storehouses. So I think that the Israelite people would have immediately thought back to that story and remembered God's power on that day when he walked his people across the sea. The waves in the undertow of that sea had the power to kill and drown, but for God's people, he simply just moved that water aside. All that power kind of makes you cause, like, tremble and fear, right? It makes you, makes you have a little bit of little fear in your heart. But the good thing is, is that our God is good, and his power is good. Like we talked about in our, our study, not only is fear like a, like, cowering position, it's also known that it's absolute and total dependence is required on God because he is so powerful He's all we need, and he is everything we need. So there in verses 6 through 9, God's words, which are powerful, remember our sandwich, they are worthy of praise. That's our second reason to praise God. There are about a million reasons to praise God, but the third one that David picked um, is outlined here in verses 10 and 11. So verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So our God of character, who has powerful words, has not abandoned his creation to random chance. He has purpose. God's purposes is another reason to give him praise. This is where I think we can debunk the the deists. Um, Deists believe that there is a God, and he creates, but then he steps back and has nothing to do with his creation. It's as if God created a top, he spun it, and then he's just sat back with his hands folded and watched it. Maybe run into things, maybe slow, maybe eventually falter, but no longer had anything to do with it. But these verses specifically debunk that. God is active in his creation. His steadfast love, his forever love, shows that he had to be involved. He has plans for his people, and absolutely nothing can spoil those plans. We talked a little bit, too, in the the discussion time about the comparing and contrasting here. The council of the nations nothing, but the counsel of the Lord forever. The plans of the people became frustrated, but God's heart plans, those will go on and on and on forever. God's purpose remains because he's actively involved and he actively protects it. Yahweh, God of the covenant, who has a promise and a plan and a purpose for his people, is worthy of our praise. 
All right, so that was the verse of, end of verse 11. So if you did write a line in your copy of Scripture, we are now to the end of the reasons to praise God, and we're coming up on the reasons to trust God. There's a little bit of a shift in tone here. Um, verse 12 actually gets really specific for David, David's audience, too. So let's read it. Verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. If you look back at verses 10 and 11, he said the words nations, like when he's talking about their plans and peoples. But here in verse 12, all of a sudden he says, and I think Mallory picked up on this, he says nation and people. He's talking specifically about his people of Israel here. They are the people of his favor, the people that he has chosen, the people who will bring Christ to the world. They, they are the people that through those people, God will save the world. Um, Israel's plan and purpose is protected by Yahweh, and he has a covenant to save them through Israel. Now, that heritage and inheritance, it's kind of a tricky word because of the way we are now today. Like, I have an inherited farmhouse that we live in. Uh, my great-great-grandparents built it, and my kids are the sixth generation to live in that house. And you better believe that when I'm retirement age, I'm going to be passing that house on because it is big and there is a lot of cleaning. Um, <laughs> but I, we tell our kids all the time, because we want to prepare them for this day, that this house will be their inheritance. Like, one of them gets to live there, or they can all live there. I don't really care. It's, you know, it's your inheritance. And that's all great. But I'm saying that with a vein of, I believe that to be true. Like, I believe that there won't be a fire, that there won't be an earthquake. I believe that the government won't come in and say, oh, actually, this is our land for however many years ago. I believe that the, some developer won't come along and, you know, whatever, buy it out, end up with it. I believe that has to be their inheritance, but I can't guarantee that. And that's the difference in Scripture when God makes a promise his inheritance is for sure. There is nothing that will stop that. It cannot be taken away. Andrea, in her psalm, talked about God's blessing. I'm, see, I'm quoting you tonight. You were quoting yourself. I'm quoting you. Um, <laughs> but she talked about God's blessing and described it as God's special favor and grace that were extended to his people of Israel. That's, that's what will ultimately come through his son. It wasn't known during the psalm, but that's eventually what came through the sending of Jesus. God chose his people Israel, and he gave them favor, a relationship with him, and his favor is a reason that we can trust him. All right, another reason to trust God surfaces in verses 13 through 15. I need a drink. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. I have to stop there. Many of you did the Jen Wilkins study that we did on Genesis. Um, and that phrase, looks down, we talked about it when we studied Genesis 1 through 11. It actually comes up twice in just those 11 chapters. Genesis 6 talks about when God looked down and noticed the, the sin and the turmoil and the destruction that was happening right before Noah. He asked Noah to build the ark. The second instance is in Genesis 11, and this one is just comical because the people at the time were attempting to become like God, so they built this very tall tower trying to show their might and their powerfulness and their awesomeness and trying to equate them with God, and it just says that God came and he looked down upon the people who were building this tower, like, booyah. Um, <laughs> so both of those stories bring us 
an undertone of judgment. God is looking down on the sins of the people, and he's looking down on the pride of the people. He's looking down on just the wrongdoings that are being done. Also in David's day, there were people who who were familiar with the other gods, um, and one of the Egyptian gods was a god of sun, and that god of sun um, was considered the god of judgment. The reason being, the sun rises higher than anything else that these people knew, and that sun shines its light into all the dark crevices, and it exposes any darkness. So that's what we see here when it talks about God looking down from heaven. The tone of judgment is what we need to read these next scriptures with. And shockingly, a lot of times when you hear judgment, you think negative. But that judgment is a reason that we can trust him. So let's start again with 13. The Lord looks down from heaven, and he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. It's not like judges today. Like, if you think of a judge in a courtroom today, they require, like, witness testimony. They require um, evidence. They require, you know, leaning on the stories of the people in the courtroom to make their ruling. It's not like that. God rules and judges based on truth and love and his all-knowing ability. It's like, like the sun, that it rises and it exposes the darkness with the light. Because of that, because he's not like the judges that we know today, that's why he's trustworthy. He is the true judge who knows all. All right, verse 16 is another reason that God can be trusted. Verse 16 and 17, actually. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue Pretty much what we can learn from this is that we cannot rely on man. Just because a king has a really big army or just because a warrior seems to be the strongest of the battle does not guarantee success. I think that the original audience, again, would have thought back to one of the stories from their heritage. Um, They would have thought back to what's in our Bible in 1 Kings 22 now, but it was the story of King Ahab. So Ahab, his death was predicted before he went into battle. It was said that he was going to die. And so Ahab got a little idea (laughs) that he was going to dress up like somebody else, that he was going to give his clothes to the king of Judah, that he was going to combine a bunch of armies, and they were going to have this big, big group of people, and that he was going to make it through this battle, like that he was going to survive it with all these plans that he made. So what happened was he went out, he sent out the king of Judah first, wearing his robes and his clothes, and the Syrian army came, Syrian, sorry, Syrian army came, and they saw him, and they were like, that's not the king, that's not Ahab, and they left him, they let him live, and they went on looking. So then, the, in light of all this, there's a really funny verse in First Kings 22, verse 34. I just think it's hilarious. But a certain man drew his bow at random if you could put air quotes in the Bible, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, this is very dramatic, turn around the chariot, (laughs) carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. Of course he was wounded. Like, this is God's plan. He predicted it. He said this is going to happen. He prophesied this. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was scary. Ahab's not laughing. But there's a final reason that we can trust God. 
and that is his power. His, his will will be accomplished, and he has power in that. All right, now let's see. Fourth reason to trust God right here. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear. Remember, depend, total dependence on God. So, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. God has plans for the people who rely on him wholly, and that plan is deliverance. Again, the people reading or listening to, to David's psalm and singing it and praising with it, they, they didn't have the full picture. They didn't understand all of this deliverance. Christ had not been born yet, but they knew of God's steadfast love, his forever love, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love, and they trusted in that. The end of verse 19 is the end of those 16 lines as to why we should trust God. It's the end of why, we should, why they should put their trust in him, but then also why we should put ours in him as well, that he will deliver us. All right, then in verse 20 and 21, there is a declaration. We kind of get out of our reasons why, and we declare, we do, God, we do. We declare we trust in you. And so that's where verse 20 picks up. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, our protector and our deliverer. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. It's like, God, like David is wrapping up his, his verse on trust in this song, and he's saying, okay, we get it. We see why we need to and why we should, and so now we do. We trust. I think, too, it's a, a great response to Andrea's psalm when he was feeling the weight of his sin and he was feeling his need for forgiveness. And then he's able to say, I trust that you are, you are forgiving me and I trust in your plan for me. If you look back at Psalm 32, 10 and 11, it says, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 30, Psalm 32 has technically now been fulfilled in Psalm 33. He asked them to be glad, to rejoice, to shout for joy, and they've done that now. They've, they've listed all these reasons to worship and to trust him, to praise and to trust him. It's been fulfilled. We move into the very last verse of this psalm. And it's, like we talked about in the discussion, it's a prayer, it's a plea. David actually shifts in speaking about God in the third person to directly crying out to God. Again, it's like he's got his guitar out, he led us in this song that he wrote, and then he's like, okay, let's pray together as we end. He says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That word hope is another form of wait, even as we wait in you. And again, it's so much richer to think about it as they didn't even have their Savior yet, as we wait for your deliverance. They had no idea how God's love was going to manifest. All they knew that was that someone was coming from his lineage to save the world. They didn't know what that looked like. 
But we as believers today, we know the full story. We know that our sin and our brokenness, as we talked about in verse 32, it separate, or in chapter 32, it separates us from God, and it separates us from the God who created using only his words. We're burdened by our sinfulness, and we seek to do better, even though we'll, ti- we'll fail time and time again. We ask for forgiveness, but still our sin separates us from the God who is perfect. And we know that the punishment for that is death, forever death. But we also know that God has promised steadfast love, forever love. That extends far past earthly death. God's steadfast love for us came in the form of his son, his only son. Jesus embodied Yahweh, the covenant gods, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Jesus is what people of David's time were hoping and waiting for. He was our substitute, and he took our, his, took our punishment on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose, and he demonstrated that steadfast, forever love of God by defeating death and going to heaven where we will join him after our earthly deaths. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. I feel like that verse is just so rich for what it meant to the people of David's day, but even more so for us as we know, we know of Christ. We wait and we hope for an eternity with him. A really cool thing about these two psalms when you throw them together is that you can share the entire gospel looking from sin, from creation, all of that, all the way through. And if you tie it up with Jesus, which is, you know, he's the manifest of that steadfast love. I'm going to pray for you real quick. Oh, Lord, you are God of promises and of covenant. Remind us of your presence. God, pour out that never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love upon us. God, we praise you for your character because you are a lover of justice and righteousness and faithfulness. We praise you for your word with which you created and which is powerful. God, we praise you for your purposes and how you are involved in creation and seeing those purposes through. And God, we trust you. We trust you because you have chosen those who you favor and that you have blessed them with a special relationship with you. We trust your judgment over creation. We trust for your light to shine in the darkness. We trust your power over the creation as well. And we trust that you will remember us and that you will deliver your people from death because of your steadfast love. God, let that love be upon us, the women of Delta, even as we hope and wait for your son's return. It's your name I pray. Amen.